Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Dean Job. His last name is spelled J-O-B-B. And we talked back in August of 2021 about an excellent true crime book I highly recommend. The title of that book that we talked about was The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian-Era Serial Killer. And it was just published this year, 2021. But I'm delighted to have him back to talk about an earlier book that he wrote back in 2015. The title of that book is Empire of Deception, the incredible story of a master swindler who seduced a city and captivated the nation. And that book currently has 243 five-star reviews. It's an editor's pick on Amazon. And there's also an audio book, too, for these books, too. Uh, Professor Dean Job is an award-winning author, journalist, and a professor at the University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he teaches in the Master of Fine Arts and Creative Nonfiction program. He's the author of eight books. Uh, some of his other titles are Daring, Devious, and Deadly, True Tales of Crime and Justice from Nova Scotia's Past. That was published in 2020. Also, The Cajuns, A People's History of Exile and Triumph, published in 2005 and Blue Nose Justice 1993, and his website is his full name, www.deanjobe.com. And again, we're going to talk about this book today titled Empire of Deception. So Dean Job, welcome to, to the show. Thanks for returning. Well, thanks for having me on, William. Awesome. Well, I mean, just another great book. Really loved reading that. We talked in the pre-show how I really admire your writing style. It's really superb. Can you talk about uh, kind of your background and what led you to write this book, Empire of Deception? Well, my my background, I, I guess I was uh, in an early convert to uh, the power and the value of true crime as a, a window on the past. Um, right now, there's such a, a resurgence of interest in true crime. And there always has been. And as I do my historical research, I see the, the kind of uh, gavel-to-gavel coverage, for instance, of trials in the newspapers of the time a uh, hundred years ago that uh, there's always been this interest. But I um, I started out as a reporter in the 80s uh, and was very quickly put on the uh, court beat. So every day I was covering the courts. My background had been history. I s sort of melded the two together. I got interested in recreating earlier crimes. And uh, as I said, I just think it's... Um, such a, a dramatic and riveting way. There's there's always great stories. There's inherent drama and stakes in uh, these crimes, be it murder or or uh, a confidence trickster fraud like uh, Empire of Deception. And uh, you learn so much about uh, how people lived at the time and um, the challenges, frankly, that police faced or uh, uh, the authorities faced in trying to find a, uh, a devious criminal. Right. So, I mean, you kind of see these similarities between these two books that we've discussed, but Empire of Deception, I mean, also uh, this kind of Chicago is involved. Can you talk about kind of the background and, and these uh, characters who were involved in Empire of Deception? Well, it's the story of a, a con man that most people have never heard of named Leo Kortz. And uh, Leo was a lawyer in uh, Chicago, the early years of the 20th century. And he's a fascinating character because he becomes a master of the Ponzi scheme before it's called a Ponzi scheme. Uh, it's named uh, the, the scheme, this pyramid scheme where uh, people invest in what they think is a real project, but their money simply pays interest to previous 
uh, uh, investors in, in quotation marks. And uh, the whole thing is just an empty shell that will burst at some point. Uh, but long before Charles Ponzi of Boston in the early 20s ran his scheme and took the name, Leo Koritz was doing the same thing in uh, about 1910 on in Chicago, uh, claiming he had uh, vast swaths of timberland in uh, Panama. Panama was far enough away to, to be exotic to uh, the people he knew in Chicago. Uh, people knew that there was a Panama Canal being cut through uh, that would open Panama to investment. He convinced a lot of people therein on the ground floor of a very lucrative investment and attracted hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of wealthy uh, people in Chicago uh, right up to the 19, early 1920s to invest. Right. And you start the book off at like this Drake Hotel, these very lavish meetings. And this character was considered really a uh, upstanding citizen, right? I mean, during this whole thing. Oh, well, the, uh, uh, the, the yes, in 1922, his uh, grateful investors, what Leo was doing was, again, a classic uh, Ponzi scheme. He was taking in new money and using that to pay incredible returns to earlier investors or current investors. He was paying on the average, uh, or by the end of it, 60% a year, 5% a month. And this was outlandish, but uh, nobody seemed to think, and especially going into the 1920s and the whole uh, excess of the Roaring Twenties jazz age and the kind of gambling on the stock market that led to the crash of 29, uh, people actually believed this was possible. So as you say, in 1922, a group of his closest investors, including his brothers, members of his extended family, as well as, as his contacts in the Chicago Jewish community, threw this huge soiree for him at the Drake Hotel, um, uh, lavishing praise on the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, this uh, king of investors, the oil king, they called him, the new Rockefeller, um, because by this time, uh, in looking for a way to really sell his timberland, he had convinced all these investors that he had discovered oil on his property. And this really put um, the demand for shares in his Biano River Syndicate, as he called it, uh, they just shot through the roof. And um, this, was an, uh, this was an example of that, this lavish dinner thrown with floral arrangements. And they even had a model of the canal zone showing uh, his properties uh, in uh, Panama, which of course was all an illusion. Right, so it's really incredible. And I think you show in the book that he was different than maybe Ponzi whose scheme uh, turned upside down in a year. He was much more clever and didn't, you said he kind of operated in the realm of secrecy much more so than maybe these other confidence men. Can you expand on that? Well, the uh, the nature of a Ponzi scheme is it's doomed to failure. Uh, keeping one going for a few years is is a stretch because inevitably the pool of new investors, and let's call them what they are, suckers, dries up. And as soon as a, a promoter like uh, Leo Kortz can't pay the dividends on time, uh, questions get asked. People start inquiring, people get upset, the whole thing collapses. Leo kept this going for almost 20 years and in a couple of ways that are interesting. Um, Charles Ponzi again claimed he could make uh, 
huge profits simply by swapping uh, the uh, international reply coupons that were used in lieu of stamps if you uh, tried to send a self-addressed or a, a prepaid envelope to a foreign country. It was a totally lucrative scheme that in the 20s seemed plausible. Um, Ponzi only lasted nine months before questions were asked. So it's incredible feat by, by Leo Koritz to last almost two decades. And two ways he did that. One was the secrecy. That meant there were fewer people to ask questions. And he made it like a club. And in this way, he's kind of like a 1920s Bernie Madoff. Madoff did have a public pro profile, but all of Madoff's investors, or a lot of them, just felt so incredibly lucky to be allowed into the club. And Leo used that tool. He used word of mouth. He used um, uh, a network of happy investors to recruit more. And he also changed the game, if you will. He started with rice farms in, in Arkansas. Um, he had some rice farms, but he built up this uh, bubble of uh, fake uh, properties and, uh, and investments. He transported that to Panama and then ultimately transported it to his oil empire. So maybe that was another factor. He, he innovated. And in early 1920s, um, the Ford, uh, the streets are clogged with Model T Fords and every other description of, of automobiles. Um, gasoline and, and oil are the new uh, 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 niche uh, investments. Uh, think, think IT or Bitcoin in our era. So he was really riding that wave and very astutely picked the one commodity that uh, investors would, would really want to get in on the bottom floor of. Right. And it's interesting, too, like he was very well educated from that time. You kind of talk about him and somebody that he uh, went, was in the same law firm with. Uh, his name was Robert Crow. Can you kind of talk about their their mutual background and how they kind of came up through Chicago at that time? Well, uh, yeah, a little of the backstory. So Leo was uh, came to came from Bohemia, now part of Czechoslovakia, uh, as a child of about nine. Uh, grew up on the north side of Chicago, uh, German Jewish, um, and uh, was really the star of his family. A large family, the only one to finish high school. Then he went to night school to get a law degree. So he was a huge success in his family, which explains why when he started sharing the wealth with his family, who are no the, none the wiser, uh, it, it cemented this idea that he was the success story. Along the way, he befriended another young lawyer named Robert Crow. Uh, so this would have been uh, uh, about 19, uh, before 1910. And they, uh, they articled or were young lawyers together in the same uh, big law firm in Chicago. The irony being that uh, about two decades later, uh, Leo's empire falls apart and he's a fugitive on the run. The state's attorney, whose job it is to hunt him down, is Robert Crow, his old friend. So it was an incredible uh, coincidence, but it also allowed me to, to really start to break Leo's story into a deeper uh, parallel story of the rise of his nemesis, Robert Crow who becomes a power broker in Republican politics in Chicago at a time of incredible corruption. And his uh, state's attorney's, uh, his attorney's office is uh, susceptible to corruption, ties to organized crime. And 
when Leo's case comes up, this sort of blast from the past, Cream is quite uh, uh, the uh, uh, Crow is quite interested because for him it's a chance to maybe track down an offender that's not going to uh, be part of the mob bosses or mob organizations that uh, his office has too many ties to, and he'd been criticized for failing to stop the rise of Al Capone and others. Uh, he sees some low-hanging fruit here, a chance to uh, uh, burnish his image as a crime fighter by tracking down this uh, fugitive uh, swindler. Right. So, I mean, you talk about Al Capone coming up at that same time and the, the Chicago's known as Wicked City. So there's tons of bordellos and gambling houses. It's just, I mean, really corruption off the charts. I mean, and so Crow, but Crow was, it was interesting too, because these two families were both immigrant families that kind of uh, had this ambition to make it in America, right? Well, that's right. And, and Crow is a well-known figure because he prosecuted the, Le the famous Leopold and Loeb case, which is part of this story because uh, at the time when Leo is on the run, he's prosecuting Leo, Leopold and Loeb, the thrill killers who, just for the fun of it, uh, kidnapped a young uh, neighbor and uh, killed him and uh, ultimately uh, led to this huge trial with Clarence Darrow as the defense. Right. I just, uh, just, sorry to interrupt, uh, yeah. but I just did an interview about that whole story like uh, 10 days ago. So yeah. people, it ties into this story really fascinating. Sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt. No, but it's so it, it becomes part of the backstory here. But um, uh, Crow is incredibly interesting, interesting as well as this uh, son of a, a Irish immigrants who uh, ingratiates himself in Republican circles, uh, his ambition and his story and his role in uh, um, the book Empire Deception and in tracking down Leo uh, really gave me an opportunity to delve into uh, the development of Chicago in the 20s, the, the latent corruption. So got that angle as well as the whole get rich quick mentality of the times and uh, the just uh, absolutely uh, incredible uh, story of how Leo was able to hoodwink so many people. And uh, it's, um, this is a book that I, I wanted to uh, uh, very uh, heavily uh, document. Uh, readers who, who are reading and think this can't really have happened can go to the back and see uh, quote by quote, incident by incident, my uh, sourcing, because it's just such an incredible story. The the uh, the outlandishness of the lies that Leo told to bring in investors. Um, he claimed to be part of a of a, a cadre of five millionaires that he called the Big Five. Him being one of them that were behind the syndicate, and some of his investors. One of his investors was a millionaire in his own right. And thought, well, can I come to some of these meetings? And Leo put him off by saying, no, you're you're just not big enough. And he accepted that. Right. <laughs> he wasn't even offended. And in, and in a sense, this simply burnished his image as a big player. And um, another uh, episode that stands out is uh, he uh, had a check that he purported to come from Standard Oil, the Rockefeller Empire, offering a million dollars, over $10 million today, for a small share or a small slice of the Bayano River oil syndicate, and waved this around at parties and at, uh, at meetings or alluded to it. 
and it was faked. But of course, this brought another stampede of investors. If the Rockefellers want a piece of this, I want a piece of my friend Leo's empire. And, and again, there's just another example of, uh, of just the, uh, the almost theatrical or uh, the chutzpah of this fellow to uh, uh, the way he was able to deceive. And some of these were accomplished businessmen who simply should have known better. Right. And I mean, he just played on people's desire to make it rich. So he did the, you told this one story about him taking a guy's wife to lunch. And that was the way that he got to her husband. And so he was very, he just was very clever and had figured it out. But he, this, the whole start of the Bayano River syndicate is interesting because it involves a character, Nieto, and Coretz traveling to Panama. Can you talk about how all that started? Well, um, Leo is is rare because of the length of time he kept his uh, his uh, Ponzi scheme going, and and let's just let's clear the air here now. They should be Koritz schemes. He got cheated, but he probably deserves to be cheated, and Ponzi takes the credit because he pioneered this scam. Um, but he also stands out because he's one of the few really successful swindlers who was a victim of swindling himself. So he finds out about Panama. Because through a former law partner in Chicago, he meets this David Nieto, who tells him about the Bayano timberland. And Leo, um, even though he's already pulling his Arkansas scams and saying he's got rice farms he doesn't have, and he's got his little mini Ponzi scheme going, um, uh, it gets a bunch of friends together. They put money into this. He ends up chasing the fellow down to Panama and finds out that that the land and the timber don't exist. And uh, this Bayano River is, is, as the locals say, good for two things. They're good. It's good for mud and alligators. And um, when he finds he's been scammed, you know, it's almost like he doesn't get mad, he gets even. He decides, well, you know, if I could be fooled that easily, I can do this better. And that's what he does. <laughs> he does it better. And his... his uh, the other thing about Leo, too, is he's an accidental con man. He was doing fairly well as a lawyer in, in practice, but he got married. There's a child on the way. The money isn't coming in fast enough. And he succumbs to a temptation that often can happen to, to lawyers because of the amount of money flowing through their coffers in, in trust from clients on, on everything from real estate deals to business deals. He dips into that in the way that He's got clients who want investments. He starts telling them to invest in mortgages, except the mortgages are fake. He forges mortgages. He pays the interest because this is people who are, are getting mortgages uh, before banks were the accepted way to do it. You could do it privately. I want to sell you a house. Okay, we'll do a mortgage. We don't need a third party. So he would say, I'm doing this on behalf of clients. Properties didn't exist. He used some of that capital that was paid in for the property to pay the interest on the mortgage. When that ran out, he did more fake mortgages. In fact, at one point he said he was he was churning them out like streetcar transfers was his line. So that's how he got into because that is the essence of a Ponzi scheme. But he really did that out of desperation. And one of the questions I was looking for so much 
There's a confession, very detailed uh, description by Leo of step-by-step step how he did this, which really informed the book and made it really possible to tell this story in real time. But I wondered when did he realize there was no going back, that no matter how many mortgages he faked, no matter how many rice farms he created, no matter how much oil he said was being pumped out of Panama, he could never make it right. And it would have been fairly early on. So it's intriguing that this master swindler um, never set out to be a master swindler. It wasn't like he, um, you know, he was born to, uh, to, uh, to swindle or he wasn't a con artist as a child or anything. Out of desperation, he started swindling. And, it's, and he did say at the first he thought he could make it all right. But eventually he just had more liabilities than he could ever cover. His only solution was to keep the money flowing in. Right. I think you, said, I think you state that in the book. Yeah, that he just, he was like, at a certain point, I was too far deep. Like he makes that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's actually to this day, one of the biggest problems for lawyers and why they get disbarred is getting into client trust accounts or all kinds of financial shenanigans is usually their downfall. So it's still a common, common pitfall for attorneys to this day. And I mean, yeah, he so he can you talk kind of about what you know his personality and why he was so successful for that time and kind of how he he involved really people that very close to him. Well, the thing you've got to understand about a swindler, especially one that's successful, that they can almost be anything because what they what they can do is convince people of things that don't exist. So there's a charm, there's a power there, a charisma, an ability to act. Um, he had to be a, a consummate actor because, and I thought about this as I was writing the book. I mean, this is someone for the better part of his life, certainly almost his whole adult life, who got up in the morning and lived a lie every moment of the day because he was living the life of a millionaire oil promoter by the end of it, as well as a lawyer and all of the other, and that's why I called it empire of deception. He just built this entire world. So think of the skill, think of the memory. Now he was incredibly charming. You mentioned he would woo the wives of potential investors. Um, he went beyond just wooing at the times, and that comes out in the book. He was an incredible womanizer, but he would give lavish gifts on them, and this would wear down their husbands if they were reluctant uh, to get involved. He, um, he also did a, and this is incredible to think, you'd think, okay, someone who's trying to keep a multi-million dollar fraud alive and needs new money would be almost out on the street grabbing people saying invest. Leo was all negative salesmanship. He relied on uh, word of mouth to bring people. And then he would make the shares hard to get. He would turn people down. <laughs> Even tens of thousands of dollars, you know, millions today, he would turn them down and say, look, I'm sorry, I don't have enough shares. And this only made demand even more. So um, the, um, the confidence confidence being part of where the term confidence trickster or con man comes from. I mean, he just exuded that. And just his 
ability to uh, sustain this, to, to live the lie. And as you said, some of these people were his best friends and they believed in him absolutely. Um, and no one challenged him. No one, because the money was coming in. And as long as the money came in, nobody could conceive of it all being a scam. And uh, uh, there's, there's a point in the book where uh, Leo is having to account for all of this in a courtroom. And he says, you know, after a while, I've talked about the timber and oil in Panama and the Biano Syndicate and all of the facilities down there. He goes, after a while, I started to believe it. Now, I didn't think this was self-delusion, but I thought it was a window into how he sustained it. In other words, it was a total lie, but to him, it was all real <laughs> because he created it. And, and that fact that he came to almost believe it himself, because everyone else did, I guess that just made it, you know, made him able to keep going. Right. And I mean, I think he just had that lifestyle, too. So he's at the best clubs. He's a model yeah. citizen. Everybody's writing about him. He goes to the best parties. It's a big event if somebody can get him to come to their soiree, right, or something right. like that. So he's like, he's living the life. He's got a good all. So he's probably just trying to sustain it. So what happens kind of next as far as kind of Robert Crow and he, Robert Crow become. I mean, you have pictures of a lot of these people in the book. So I highly recommend people take the step and you can see these these characters. Um, but Crow is a very young. He becomes chief justice, right? Well, yeah, he becomes a judge and then becomes a DA and a power broker in Republican politics in 1920 Chicago and an ally of, of uh, Big Bill Thompson, the uh, 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 showman and uh, flamboyant mayor and uh, thoroughly corrupt mayor of Chicago through most of the 20s. Um, and what happens, what happens in the storytelling of this is there's really a parallel story because despite the fact Crow and Leo have crossed paths as you their careers are totally in silos. So um, interspersed with the development of his uh, of his master Ponzi scheme. You also see uh, how Crow's uh, career has developed and grown. And it's only when uh, Leo uh, has to skip town uh, that their lives then re-intersect because Crow is the chief lawman of uh, Chicago. So it's up to his office to uh, lead the investigation by Chicago police and ultimately bring down the indictments that can be used to um, uh, for arrest warrants to try to find him. Um, and so I jumped a little bit ahead, uh, William. So maybe I should talk about what exactly led to Leo's downfall. I was just going to ask that question. Please do. Well, I talked about uh, how there was just absolute rock-solid belief in Leo. No one doubted him. The people that were making... And here's the other thing about a Ponzi scheme that goes on this long. This happened with Madoff. Some people don't lose money. Some people profit because they're in long enough. I mean, if you're even in a couple of years at 60% interest, you, you have made your money back and maybe a little bit of a profit. 
at the expense of someone else who's going to lose big, of course, and be wiped out. Um, right. But they're but, the free advertiser too. So look, there's a success story. So the the original confidence man has this success story that success success story that can uh, basically be an advertisement for the continuing fraud, right? But but the and the fundamental problem Leo had was not convincing people to invest, but to get enough money. Because the more investors, more liabilities. I mean, just remarkable that he apparently he may have destroyed some documents. They were the records of this were never found. But it seems like he kept a lot of this in his head, never missed an interest payment, and somehow and did this all alone. You know, Ponzi had a team of salesmen in Boston. Um, Leo was a one-man show. Um, but what happens is he has to constantly inflate. So as he's desperate for money in 1923, he comes up with an idea that also is, is partly an escape route. He tells his core supporters, people who've been with him for years, his closest friends, that he wants them to become part of, finally to become part of the Biano Syndicate. He offers them uh, huge salaries to come work for the syndicate. Some people were, were going to make two or three times. One guy said, well, yeah, I was offered a job and it was going to be three times my salary, so I quit. But, you know, I don't really know what I was supposed to do. <laughs> he hires he hires his best uh, friend and a longtime investor in this and other schemes as his director of engineering. And he says to them, because he's also getting pressure, some of the investors want to see the property. Why can't we go to Panama and tour the properties? So he rolls this up into an idea, expanded empire. Uh, you're going to be part of it. And uh, first thing you need to do is go down there and see for yourself what's going on. So after facing a lot of pressure and trying to put people off, he decided, okay, let them go because he's going to make sure he's out of town by the time they get there. Um, so there's a great scene at the Chicago train station. Six of these investors are going to head to uh, New York, take a steamer. It'll take them about a week to get to Panama. And uh, he said, look up this fellow Espinosa. He's my local contact, doesn't exist, and sends them off. And uh, he even says to one of them, he goes, you know, I'm really glad you're going. You're going to see our great facilities for yourself. You'll be surprised. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. and sure enough, they are. So um, thanks to the newspaper coverage of the time, and, and there, there was also a cache of uh, a court and archival documents to back up some of this. But uh, the um, this Biano uh, excursion team finally gets down to Panama, and there's no one there to greet them. They're in Panama City. They're only about 60 miles from the Biano Holdings. They can't find Espinosa. They can't find anybody called Espinosa. They can't find any trace of Biano. For days, they're looking, and it never dawns on them that the reason they can't find anything is because there's nothing there. So it's just, again, just the power of persuasion this man had. And then they, and there's a flurry of, of, of telegrams back to Chicago, trying to find Leo, trying, uh, trying other people who are part of the investor group to see if they can find him. And of course, he skipped down with whatever money he could scrape together. And then finally, they realize, um, 
and actually there was one funny scene where they they're all meeting at night they've all fanned out through panama city they're desperately trying to find any evidence that leo was there and has holdings and they they do their little summit at night and and one of them says you know after all this we thought well perhaps we hadn't looked deeply enough <laughs> i mean it's been days and then it finally the reality dawns on them that yeah, he, that they he Right. And I think you wrote in your book that part of eastern uh, Panama where the river was that was based on the Bayano River Syndicate was like one of the most primeval or un, you know, sullied or untouched parts of Panama. So like even that makes it even worse is that there's nothing there. Yeah, it's incredible. So he skips town. You've got a lot of investors just flummoxed trying to figure out what's going on and i mean there's a lot more left of this story and what did you have what was it like kind of looking through the papers and uh doing the research for this story trying to get all that information together from 100 years ago well um there was an amazing uh trove of newspaper coverage um chicago had on the order of six or seven daily newspapers in the 1920s some were morning and afternoon editions of each other. But, um, you know, this was the era of the extra, sometimes two or three papers a day. Uh, this was huge news when it broke. Um, uh, huge headlines. Um, der derision and ridicule heaped on these investors. Um, the, the Panama team that has to come back, their tails between their legs, are just unmercifully uh, attacked in the press for their foolishness, you know, and they, 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 they stuttered to try to say, you know, we can't explain how we believed in this man, but we did. So there was all of this coverage, all of speculation, where might Leo be? Uh, they thought he'd, he chartered a, a plane and this was in the days before air, air travel was that easy. It was still biplanes and things, or that he was on a steamer to Europe or, uh, that he was uh, on his way to the Far East. Uh, he apparently was sighted in Paris, Morocco, uh, Honolulu. Um, so it, it's just a story that day after day after day, uh, because there was so much press coverage and so much competition by the press, and that, that was an interesting part of the story, how the press uh, uh, would have investigated this and and really, uh, uh, this was just a perfect sort of Chicago scandal right. story. And uh, and ultimately, it meant that everybody, and then and there were some continuing court proceedings in his absence that also gave a structure. But you could just see that the newsmen were just competing to talk to as many investors as they could, to talk to the court's family, to talk to anyone who'd had uh, dealings with him and uh you know to uh, to really flesh out the story because everything had happened all the previous 20 years there had been hardly a whisper in the newspaper about leo and certainly nothing about his syndicate because he operated in secrecy right there you go so he kept it going for 20 years i mean a really an incredible tale and just the context of chicago that you include in the book and all the just the craziness of the city itself is all there but there's a lot more to the story um it, I mean, we've probably only covered about a third of that, but it can, I mean, it still unravels. What would you like to, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up or how would you like to kind of finish it up? 
Well, I, I just like to, uh, I will, I, I, there's, there's so many potential spoiler alerts here. I'm not going to do them because as I said, the twists and turns in this story have already seemed incredible, but there's more to come. But one thing is uh, Leo was on the land for about a year and it turns out he's in a place called Nova Scotia that I know well, because that's where I live. And that's how I found the story. He's eventually discovered uh, hiding out in Nova Scotia under an assumed name, Lou Keat. Now this wasn't very, his name was Leo Koritz. He went by Lou Keat. But nobody in Nova Scotia was the wiser. And he just lived it up, lived a high life. Uh, his uh, uh, house, uh, he had this remote lodge renovated into sort of a, a northern version of, of Jay Gatsby's uh, mansion with parties every night and hired orchestras. And uh, and that's another. So there's, there's a whole uh, afterlife of Leo as uh, sort of living living it up as long as he can on the lamb and amazingly uh, simply changing his name but nobody in nova scotia this is nobody could google him it's all you know it's all uh, uh, pre the kind of mass media or, or that, that we're used to today uh no one questioned a lot of rich americans had summer homes in nova scotia he just seemed to be another one and uh many, many people uh, uh, cashed in on his uh, hospitality. And so there's a whole Canadian aspect to this story that um, that is, is, is as wild as anything that happened in Chicago. And where, where's the best place to get this book, Dean? Well, it's published by Algonquin Books in the United States. HarperCollins Canada is my Canadian publisher. It's available in paperback uh, everywhere. Uh, it's uh, still selling well, I'm happy to say, but it's also available as an ebook and as an audio book and uh, the uh, so uh, available anywhere. Right. So you can get this at the audiobook on Amazon, anywhere. And uh, your website, if people want to reach out to you, it's deanjob.com, D-E-A-N-J-O-B-B.com. Right. Yeah, J-O-B-B is the last name. Uh, this uh, sort of a strange spelling, I know. Um, I've got a page with uh, uh, the book got great reviews. It was uh, a book of the year by the Chicago Writers Association, and it was nominated for major prize here in Canada. So there's more information, and it got some, uh, some really uh, – uh, uh, encouraging reviews at the time so uh, people can check out there's a little introduction to the story uh linked to some excerpts and uh they can check it out yeah you had like two or three pages of just reviews so people <laughs> definitely people were re reading it in the right places uh thanks so much dean job again the title of the book is empire of deception the incredible story of a master swindler who seduced a city and captivated the nation published 2015 by dean job thanks so much dean appreciate it Thank you, William. All right, take care. Stay there. All right, cool. That was.